explained faithfully, we are hearing God speak to us. This is where we meet him. This is where we find him. This is where we come to know him. And let's spend a minute on this because some people can get, it's kind of, I don't know, this day and age or any day and age, it's, it's confusing sometimes. Finding God in his word in the Bible is because it's not always like satisfying to people, right? They, people want more than the God's word. They want something different than God's word. And I am right there empathizing. If you feel this way, I'm right there empathizing with you. I feel this way sometimes too. People will say, or I'm, I might feel this way, I wish that God would just show me a miracle. I wish, if he showed me a miracle, I would believe in him. I just wish that God would speak to me directly, audibly, into my ears. If he would just do that, I would believe him. I would do what he, whatever he told me to do, I would do it. If he would just like, really harshly nudge my feelings a certain way, I would believe in him, or I'd do what he wants me to do, or I'd know what he wants me to do. Um, there's a great movie, different than Warm Bodies. Um, it's called The Seventh Seal. It's actually like a film. It's from 1957. Ingmar Bergman directed and wrote it. Great, great film. Um, it's got that classic, I don't know if you've heard this, classic story of a, of a knight returning from the Crusades, and he's playing chess with death personified. Anybody seen Seventh Seal? It's good. You check it out. It's really good. It's, it's one of those movies you, you watch one time, and then maybe you'll watch it like 10 years later, but it's worth it. Um, so there's this great scene where the, the main character is expressing everything that we've just been talking about. Um, maybe you thought, here's what the main character says. I love this. It's like the confession scene. Um, he's, here's what he says. He says, is it so terribly inconceivable to comprehend God with one's senses? Why does he hide in a cloud of half promises and unseen miracles? I want knowledge, not faith. Not assumptions, but knowledge. I want God to stretch out his hand, uncover his face, and speak to me. I love the honesty of Igmar Bergman as he's speaking through this character. I think we've all been there at some point. We want God to stretch out his hand, uncover his face, and speak to me. But James says that the word of God is God speaking to us. This is sufficient. This is how God meets us in this simple, it's so simple. <laughs> Why do we want this really uh, you know, complex, big thing? We want God to roll out the red carpet for us when we've got the word right here. He's speaking to us in his word. It's simple, profound way in the scriptures. This is where we should look for him in the Bible. Not in miracles, but in his word. You know, Jesus tells this story, kind of a crazy story, that at one point, and this is in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells this story where this poor man, Lazarus, he dies. And then there's a rich man who neglected Lazarus his whole life, didn't care about this poor guy. And this rich guy dies too. And the rich man ends up in hell, and Lazarus is with Abraham. This is, I guess, I don't know how this works, but he's with Abraham in heaven, I guess. And uh, the rich man is in hell. And the rich man asks Abraham, can you send Lazarus to my brothers? Because I don't want them to end up here too. And here's what is really interesting. Here's what the text says, um, starting in verse 27. And the rich man said, then I beg you, father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. 
So the rich man is asking, I want to, if my brothers see a miracle, then they'll repent. And Abraham says in the story, Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. That, what, what that means is that's the Old Testament. That's the Bible. That's God's word for these original hearers, Moses and the prophets. And then the story goes on. Jesus goes on, verse 30. And the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they see a miracle, right? If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So Abraham, in this story, is telling the rich man that hearing the Bible, hearing God's word, is more powerful than seeing someone rise from the dead. It's more powerful than seeing a miracle. They, they won't hear Moses and the prophets. If they, they won't hear Moses and the prophets, nothing is going to convince them. Seeing miracles will not convince us. I know there's part of us, maybe all of us, that just wants to see a miracle. I feel like I'll finally be convinced fully. Seeing a miracle will not convince us. Remember, um, Connie brought up John 6. Remember what happened in John 6? All these people saw this miracle of the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. And what did the, how did the people respond? Meh, not interested in this. I reject that. I reject you, Jesus. There are people that saw Jesus' miracles. There are people that heard of Jesus raising Lazarus, another Lazarus, from the dead. And what was their response? They plotted how to kill Jesus. That was their response to seeing the miracle. The problem is not outside. The problem is something inside. One more thing. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, I just think he even takes it the next step. So Peter in, first chapter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, he tells the, his listeners, he says that he saw Jesus transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw Jesus in his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, is what we call it. And he heard God the Father speak into his ears. This is my son whom I love. He heard God speak to him. And you know what Peter says? He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed than that experience he had. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed in what? He says, the scriptures. Peter is saying, if he, had to make, if he had to choose between seeing Jesus in his glory, hearing God the Father speak into his ear, versus the scriptures, God's word, the Bible, what would Peter choose? The Bible. He would choose that over an experience. He would choose the Bible, hearing God's word, because God's word is active and alive and actually, by his spirit, works in our hearts. Jesus, Peter, Luke, James, they're all saying that it's not some kind of external dramatic thing that you need. That you're, there's nothing that God is lacking to give you. He speaks to us in his word, in the scriptures. What we need, the issue is not out there. The issue is in here. We need ears to hear. We need a heart that receives. We need a miraculous inward change from God. And the only way to come to God in his word is with meekness. It's a miracle that we ever come and we ever listen to God because our hearts, are, our hearts are so hard. God works in our hearts to make us meek. What is meek? We don't use that word a lot. We probably have not used that word in a few years, maybe, unless you're reading the Bible. Uh, meek means to be easily imposed upon. Meek means to be submissive. Blessed are the meek. They're the submissive ones. Blessed are the ones who do what they're told. <laughs> that is not a very popular sentiment in America in the 21st century, right? Um, are you easily imposed on by the word of God? Are you submissive? Do you do what you're told from God's word? 
this is the most counterculture thing you can possibly do in the 21st century in America, is be meek and be meek toward the word of God, to him speaking to us. The opposite of receiving with meekness the implanted word is to say, this is not enough. I need more. I reject God as he reveals himself in the Bible. It's not enough. You need to do more for me. I'm special. I need something more than this. Our text says that the word of God is able to save your soul initially when he makes us alive to receive it. And even throughout the rest of your life, as you grow into maturity, we're saved more and more from the power of sin. The message of the good news is here to be meekly received. This is God speaking to us, his people. Now, this is um, kind of what we're talking about outside. This is how the word of God works. In one sense, it's not exhaustive at all. But this, how does it, how does, what about inside of us? What should be a little bit more thinking about our attitude? What should be our attitude toward God's word? When the word of God is read, when the word of God is, when you read it, when you're in a Bible study, when you're hearing the word of God faithfully expounded, faithfully explained in a sermon, what does it look like to hear it and receive it? One of the foundational documents that I love is, uh, to, for our denomination, other denominations, is called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And it's this um, question and answer thing that helps us understand what, you know, what does the Bible say? And it's all based on scripture proofs. And question 90 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism addresses this very question. What should be an attitude of hearts? What does it look like to be meek when it comes to receiving God's word? So the question that, they, the way they ask it is, how is the word to be read and heard that it may become effective to salvation? And here's the answer. So it's saying, how do you listen well? How do you listen meekly? Answer, we listen with meekness. We must attend to the word with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Receive it with faith and love. Lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives so that it may become effective to salvation. In order for the word to actually affect salvation for us initially or throughout the rest of our lives, we are to come to the word with diligence, preparation, prayer, lay it up in our hearts, practice it in our lives. That's the only way that it ever affects us, saves us, changes us, comforts us, really in a good way challenges us. There's this precondition. We have to actively listen with meek hearts to him. Is there anything in this answer up here that maybe you or your family might be, could work on? Is there anything here that maybe, for example, um, diligently listening to when the Bible's read, when the, or uh, when the Bible's being preached? Diligently listening, or maybe prayerfully asking the Holy Spirit, that's what the prayer thing is, help me, Holy Spirit, I can't take any of this in unless you help me. Dil you know, asking the Holy Spirit, praying that the Holy Spirit would change you, change us, you change. Sometimes I pray, sometimes when someone's up here and talking about Jesus, toward non-Christians, I'm just praying for me and everybody else in this room. Anybody in this room that's not a Christian is an example. Pray for myself, pray for my family, that we would have soft hearts to hear him, to be changed. Um, maybe you have a critical spirit that wants to point, instead of meekly listening, wants to point out all the flaws in a sermon. I know this is definitely a seminary, seminarian's curse. <laughs> it's mine. Um, I don't know about that. Technically, um, 
or maybe you feel like this like sermon stuff and is just secondary and, and there's you, uh, your own personal experiences would be you know kind of trump whatever's being said um what does it look like what's one place what's one way that you can put into practice being an actively meek listener receiving god's word to you james wants us to be good listeners to god's word when he speaks and he also wants us to be good doers. James's second point. Once we are able to hear, it's not over, right? Because look, because God speaks to us, we are to hear his word and do it. Look at me in verses 22 and 24. James writes, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. So the first step is to hear, but hearing alone is insufficient. It's not enough. When we don't do what we hear, James says, we are deceiving. He uses the word deceiving ourselves. Now, deceiving, one commentator put it, it's like it's mixed up with this idea of defrauding. So it's like you're stealing from yourself when we hear but don't do. We don't respond. Um, so James is saying that if you just come and hear, even if you listen intently, even if you take tons of good notes, even if you're totally um, present, you know, present to listen and, and hear, um, if you don't do and respond, then we're wasting our time. We're stealing from ourselves. Because why even go to worship, right? Why even listen to God? Why even read the Bible if we're not seeking to do what God says and to respond to what God says in his word? Um, and second of all, we're deceiving ourselves. We're feeling like, oh, yeah, I went to church. I went to worship. I've listened. But if there's no responding, then that was all worth I'm stealing from myself. I'm deceiving myself that I'm doing what God wants me to do, and I'm stealing from myself. So James gives, like, two illustrations here that I thought were really weird for a long time, and I still think they're weird, but they're, let's get into these two kind of illustrations here. Um, first, he says that failing this trial looks like this. It's as if a man looked really hard at his true natural face, and he saw what he really looked like, and he really got it into his head. This is what I look like. And he comes away from the mirror and immediately just forgets everything that he saw. This is like when we, when we read the Bible, it's like a mirror. We see who we really are in comparison to what the Bible says. This is, the Bible says this is what real life looks like. This is what it really looks like actually looks like to love others, to love God. And we look at it, and we're like, oh, crud, I don't do this. <laughs> and, we, and then we turn away, and we forget everything. We just forget exactly what we really look like. This is one of the several preposterous, ridiculous images that James uses in this letter. Here's what he's saying. Uh, for example, a moment ago, you may have thought, a few moments ago in the sermon, this very sermon, you may have thought, yeah, God's talking to me in his words, and God wants to connect with me, and I realize that I've not been as diligent as I could to hear him. I've seen myself in the mirror as we're in James in this text, and I've seen where I'm not being meek, and I've seen where I'm not being, um, receiving his word to me. But then, here's what this would look like. As soon as worship service is over, what if we go away and we just forget all about it? If it just stops there. What if what, what's happening to us stays in this room and doesn't follow us out? We don't apply it out there. This is the kind of thing that James 
is talking about, and it's a trial. And we sh- this is a trial we should be experiencing at least every week, right? This is a good trial. Good, trials are good. They grow us into be like Jesus. Trials are good. What does it look like to persevere in this trial? Well, James tells us in verse 25, he gives an example of another man. He perseveres. Verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So this other man, he looks, and he has a different view of the law. He is planning to put this, to the law, the word, God's word, he's planning to put this into practice, and he has a different view of what the, how to view the law. So uh, James calls it law here. That's how first century Jews and early Christians would have called um, the Old Testament, the law. James is imagining someone hearing the Bible read or in a Bible study or listening to a sermon, and there are two things going on as this person encounters God in his word. Um, They're encountering perfection. They're encountering wholeness. They're encountering the way that God intended for life to be, and they're experiencing freedom, this man. Let me get into the first one for a second. So God's word is perfect. Here's Here's what we encounter when we read the Bible, and this is one way that I think James is veering toward this way. For example, God's character. We get to see God's character in the Bible. And we, through his character, we know his good designs for creation. For, for example, God gives life. So he's a life giver. So we should not murder humans, especially humans that are made in his image. We actually shouldn't even revile them or despise them in our minds. That's how serious it is. That's how God's character should inform, his perfect character should inform a perfect whole life. Um, God is faithful, so we don't commit adultery, and we keep all of our promises. We keep all of our commitments, so much so that your yes is a yes. You don't have to say, I promise. You don't have to say, I pinky swear. Your yes is a yes to everyone. Around. You know, they know you're a person of integrity that does what they say they're going to do. You're faithful. Um, God is generous, right? So instead of stealing from people who don't deserve to be stolen from, we give to those that don't deserve our generosity. That's how God is with us, isn't it? That's his character. That's perfection. That is perfection. That is, the, that is the perfect law right there. And when we encounter this perfect law, we see how far we fall short. We see the places where, our, looking into the mirror, we see where our hair is out of place. We see where the spinach is on our teeth. We see the boogers hanging out of our nose. <laughs> We see those places where we are selfish, where we are self-serving, where we hurt other people in ourselves, where we're living, where we're speaking, where we're thinking against the way that we were made to be by God, against even his very character. We're against him. So this perfect law shows us where we fall short. It shows us where we miss the mark. And hold that thought for a second, because it also sets us free. This sounds like bad news. Hold on a second, though. Now, the law of liberty, that sounds like, that's, an, that's called an oxymoron. You have law and liberty. You have restriction, law, and then liberty, freedom. These two things should not go together. What James is getting at here is our tendency to view God's word as, and God's law, God's laws as well, um, not as a place where we find and experience freedom, but a place where we are feel burdened and constrained by all of his rules, right? All these laws, all these rules, 
Why can't I do anything fun? Why am I getting so restricted by God and all these rules? But, but when you trusted in Jesus, it, Jesus, here's the thing, that perfect law that, that, that God has that is a reflection of his character, when you fall, so we all fall so far short of it and we miss the mark. But when you trusted in Jesus, he takes the punishment for you messing up this good creation, messing up your relationship, hurting people, being selfish, being self-centered. Jesus takes the punishment for all of that that we have done. And your condemnation is over. The condemnation went on him. And not only this, but you have been born again. You're a different person now, and you want to please God. So that perfect standard that God has for us, it's no longer condemning you. It's no longer condemning me. Now, this is the place where I serve God. This is the, this is the place where um, instead of condemning me, this is what it looks like to please God. And I am now free from sin. Sin used, uh, sin used to have me thinking that serving God was, was, uh, was taking away my fun, taking away my rights. But the big trick of sin is tricking us into believing that sin is freedom. Sin is not freedom. Sin is slavery. Remember, this is the ancient lie that the serpent told to Eve. He told her, right? He said, um, oh, the fruit. God's keeping you down with all these onerous rules. Just, just, just do whatever you want. It's freedom. That's the, and whenever we hear that, why can't I do more fun stuff? Why can't I have do anything fun? As if breaking any of the Ten Commandments is fun. Like adultery. Is that fun? No. <laughs> why can't I do anything fun? It's this echo of this ancient lie. Freedom, though, is serving Jesus. You were unable to serve God before because you were a servant of sin, but now you've changed here. So that you view his law different. And his law has a different relationship to you. Here's the relationship now. Jesus' pleasure is now your pleasure. Like, I'm telling you something you know if you're a Christian. What Jesus loves, what Jesus hates, that is now your heart. And you're growing into it. If you're a believer, I'm telling you something that you know about yourself. You don't have to argue with me about it. If you trust in Jesus, this is your attitude. Jesus' pleasure is now your pleasure. And that unreachable that unreachable standard that once condemned you is now our guide to knowing what gives pleasure to our King and Savior and Lord. It used to be that that standard would tell you, you fall short here, you fall short here, you fall short here, condemned. But now the law tells you this. This is a place in your life where you can find freedom from sin as you trust Jesus as your Savior and obey him. Here's another place in your life where you can stop acting like you're controlled by sin. And here's a place in your life where you can actually trust Jesus and obey him and receive this blessing. That's how the law, that's, that's the law's attitude toward us and our attitude toward the law now. One of the key distinguishing marks of someone who has been born again is that they don't see God's law as a burden. They don't see God's law as a slave master. Instead, they desire it and see it as embodying what a life that is pleasing to God looks like, and that's their whole purpose for existing. The law shows them what pleases God, and they're delighted to do it. So to sum all this up, James is telling us to hear and receive the word of God meekly, and then practice what we hear. His laws are good laws for us, and your heart's been changed so you love his law. This is the basic, no, I said earlier, this is foundational. This is like the basic rhythm of the Christian life, especially our weekly rhythm as we gather together to worship him and hear his word, hear him speak to us. He speaks to us. This is the basic rhythm of your life if you're a Christian. He speaks to you 
You hear him and you respond. He speaks to you, we hear him, and we respond. This is the whole of our life. Imagine if that was, you did this every week, you know, for, the, for 50 years, what kind of person are you going to become? What kind of person are you headed toward being? Now, what's one way that we can be better doers of what we hear? I'm going to give a small example, then we're about to come to the table in a second. We give a small example. You can riff off this, but this is just an example from our text today. Uh, my natural response to preaching is to want to have a conversation in the car when we get home. I want to ask this question. What did you think about the sermon? It was good. It was bad. It was boring. It was exciting. That's my natural tendency. I don't know if it's yours, but it's my natural tendency. Um, might I suggest that that is an unhelpful question <laughs> to ask? Uh, at least my attitude, my attitude behind that question is not good. Um, that's not leading me to apply what God said. That's not leading to respond to what God has said to me. And at least for me, it, help, it leads to some unhelpful places. Um, a better question to ask your friends, a better question to ask your spouse, your children, your parents, um, is where in that, in that from where, all the things that God spoke to us today, was there one place where the Holy Spirit was really pointing you? Was there something that really hit you? And what do you think would be one small response? What's, what would be one small thing or big thing what would be some, one way that we can respond to what we heard today? It could be just right there praying for help. I mean, that's a great thing to do, great response to any time God speaks to us. Pray for help. Um, but what does it like to respond, you know, weekly as, or whenever we encounter his word? James is saying here that if the moment of realization that you experience in this room, if the moment you leave, God, God wants, doesn't want you to keep it in this room. He wants you to take it into the world. Take it into your life. Apply it to your life. How can you take what your meek hearing has received every week and work it out out there? So we're people that hear, we are people that hear and do, and we are people that hear and do and are blessed. And I'll summarize this last short point really quickly. Uh, two weeks ago, we were in Luke chapter 19. I got to preach in Luke chapter 19. And Jesus was promising all these rewards to people when he returns. And James here is telling us we get even more rewards <laughs> before Jesus comes. Um, James is promising here that we will be blessed at the very end. He, uh, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer that acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James is promising us blessing now. He's promising us, on top of all the blessings we get when Jesus returns, we get even more blessings. What blessings can we expect from God as we do what he says? He's telling us that if we do what we hear him say, we will be happy. That's what blessed means. Before we go to the table, because we need help with this, before we go to the table, I'll just name some of these. I've got 10 blessings. I'm not going to give any commentary on them, very little commentary maybe. But pick one of these to grab onto as something that you want, a blessing that you desire as we do what he says. Here's what happens when you hear, he speaks, we hear, and we do, and we trust him. Here's what happens to you. You get a clear conscience. You get to be more mature as you become more and more like Jesus. You gain wisdom. People trust you. You can actually love and help people more. If you're, when you're not entangled in sin, you can actually love and help people more. You get greater subjective assurance that God loves you. You get to live simply as you trust and obey him. You don't have to live in a web of lies. You don't have to justify to everybody and yourself what you've done or haven't done all the time. 
When you trust him, you do what he says, we get enduring joy in the saddest, hardest times of our lives. We don't fall to pieces, or we fall to pieces in a good way. We get a greater experience of your relationship with him. Number 10, this is my favorite. I like this one. It simply pleases your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to do what he says, because he's the Lord, and he has good things for you. This is how we come to gradually, over a lifetime, come to be more and more as God, that God the way that God had made us to be originally, free from sin, and more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. God speaks to us. We hear and respond over and over again. This is the rhythm of our lives. And imagine, I mentioned a moment ago, just doing one small well, response every time you come to worship. Over 20 years, what kind of person will you be? Over 50 years, as you're trusting him. Now, this sounds easy, but you and I know that it's not. There's part of me, when I hear this, part of me is like, yeah! And then another part of me is like, oh, I'm in big trouble. <laughs> I can't do this. <laughs> um, and I think both of those are right. We can do this. We can respond to his word. We can come meekly, but we can't do it on our own. The simplest trust and obedience, the simplest, most basic trust and obedience, we need the Spirit's help. We need the Spirit of Jesus. We need his help working in us. So what does he do? He shares this meal with us. You know, we need physical food. Like, just like we need like bread, you know, it nourishes us physically. It gives us energy to do physical things. This bread and this cup, this gives us spiritual food so that we can do what God asks us to do and we can respond in faith spiritually to him. That's what he offers in this meal, help. Because we need help. I need help. You need help. He nourishes us to trust us and to do his will. Now, if you're someone here who has not received with meekness the implanted word, if you've not trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of rebelling against him, if you've not joined a church and been baptized by a church that follows Jesus, we would ask that you would refrain from participating in this meal we're about to take because this meal is for those that claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But as you pass by this meal, let this meal pass by you, please consider what it is that you're giving up. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is a, where Paul tells us of the institution of the Lord's Supper. This is what Jesus did on the night before he was betrayed, night that he was betrayed. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, as the elders and the musicians come up here, let me remind you that we will eat the bread as we sit down. We'll come up row by row, starting in the front. We'll eat the bread as we sit down. And then we'll take the cup all together at the end, together. I feel like there's one more thing I need to say. I think that's it. Uh, let's pray that God would help us. Father, we thank you so much for this meal. Thank you that you don't leave us. Ugh, it would just be terrible if you left us with a command like this and didn't help us. And we thank you so much that you do strengthen us. You do help us to do your will. Would you meet us by your spirit as we eat and drink in faith? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.